well, hey, this is Eric. I'm one of the ministers at Regency. I just wanted to thank you for checking out this message. We're praying that God uses this message to draw your heart closer to Him. If you're ever in the Mobile area, we want to invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 10 a.m. If you'd like to find out more information about Regency or to check out some other resources, visit our website at regencycc.org. Some walks change everything. Noticed on Facebook over the past month, throughout the month of March, I've seen a number of anniversary pictures, um, and even some pictures from a couple years back being at different weddings. And I was thinking back to how I think over the past three marches, I have been a part of a wedding. Um, in fact, right before COVID happened, uh, I was at a wedding, and it was kind of as things were starting, and they had like a buffet dinner. Do y'all remember buffets where you would come and kind of grab your own food? And even at that moment, it was kind of like, should we be doing this? Is it okay that we're doing this? But it didn't seem as serious as it did a few weeks after that. But there's something about weddings and being at a wedding, especially when you're up front, and you see the bride come in, and she's at the back and everybody stands, and this bride takes this walk, this march, down the aisle, and it changes everything. From that moment on, it should change everything for that couple as they get married and begin this family together. Some walks change everything. Today's March 21st, and 56 years ago, there was a, a walk, a march, that changed a lot. Um, on March 21st, 1965, Martin Luther King Jr. and a number of his civil rights workers were with him, and they left from the city of Selma, Alabama, to march to Montgomery to fight for the right for African Americans to vote. And they'd been turned back two times already, but this time they had the backing of President Johnson. He'd given his support to the march, and instead of having armed guards there to turn them back, they were there to protect them as the marchers embarked on this 54-mile walk. When they got to Montgomery, Dr. King gave one of the most famous speeches that he had given, and it was summarized by the phrase, how long, not long. And in the speech, he says this, he says, like an idea whose time has come, not even the marching of mighty armies can halt us. We are moving to the land of freedom. And it was some months after that, on August 6th, that the, um, the Writing Votes Act was signed into law. And so some marches, some walks, change everything. And there's a, there's a march, there's a walk that takes place uh, around 2,000 years ago, a march, a walk that Jesus took. And it's found in John chapter 12. And in John chapter 12, Jesus of Nazareth got on the back of a donkey, of a colt, to ride into Jerusalem. We call it the triumphal entry. And it started the clock ticking on a week that has changed the world that we live in. And this week, this important week, this four days in this week, it led to a new day. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about a new day and how because of this important week in the life of Jesus, it's led to this hope that we now can be a part of. Now, I've been struck by throughout the four Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. As you start to read them, you'll notice something really interesting. This one week, this holy week as we call it, beginning with the triumphal entry and culminating with the resurrection from the dead. If Jesus lived 33 years, which is roughly what most scholars say that he lived, this week is one 1,716th of his life. 
which if you're doing the math, which I've done the math, is 0.06% of Jesus's life. It's a pretty small percentage. But if you read through the Gospels, you'll start to recognize that they seem to put a lot of emphasis on this one week. It's 0.06% of Jesus's life, but it's 33% of the Gospel. And so from the time of the triumphal entry forward, 33% of our Gospel narrative is this one week. That's pretty amazing. It shows that to the gospel writers, this is something worth spending a lot of focus and time and effort and energy on. So why? Why is it so important that we spend so much time thinking about this week that led up to Jesus dying and being resurrected from the dead? Well, open with me, if you haven't already, to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. Jesus there is going to begin to tell us why this is so important, why this week is going to change the world. And we want to listen to the words of Jesus and to the teachings of Jesus today and let this week, these 96 hours, press in on us a little bit. And so first go to John chapter 12, verse 27, and then we'll jump back to the beginning of that section to see it for its whole. And listen to why Jesus says it's so important. He says this in John chapter 12, verse 27. He says, Now my soul, or some translations say my heart, is troubled. And what shall I say? Quick time out. I love that the gospel writers are going to include for us these moments of Jesus's humanity. He's looking at what he's about to walk into. And like you or I, he says, this is troubling. I'm troubled. His soul, his heart is in turmoil. And so he asks this question. And then he says this. He says, Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. The reason, Jesus says, the reason I'm clothed in humanity, the reason I'm walking the face of the earth, the reason the incarnation happened is for this moment. Everything has been coming and leading up to this, like little streams coming together to form a big river. Jesus goes, this is what it's all about. This is what everything has been leading up to. And so Jesus's turn towards the cross turns the whole world upside down. And to get today, we're going to look at a story in the Gospel of John where Jesus lays out for us a reason why we can say this with confidence. Why did these 96 hours, this one week, why did these four days change it all? And Jesus goes, let me tell you why. And so let's go back in John chapter 12 to verse 20 because that's where this section of the story begins. Jesus is turned towards the cross and his resurrection. And so look at John chapter 12, starting in verse 20, and it says this. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Now, it seems like they came to Philip because Philip was Greek, and so that's why they came to him and asked him this question. It says, sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. We would like to see Jesus. And I want to come back to that statement in a few minutes. Philip went to tell Andrew Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. 
Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. And we need to stop there for a second. This idea of a voice coming from heaven, this only happens three times in the Gospels, and so it seems like it's pretty important. Often we just read right over things in the Bible without trying to put ourselves in the picture or in the, the sandals of the people that are in the situation who are standing there going, what in the world is going on? And so this voice comes from heaven. And it says this, it says, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said, the crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to them. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Okay, so what is going on? They begin by saying, we want to see Jesus. And Jesus says, oh, you're going to see me, all right. He goes into almost this riddle-type teaching about his cross. But notice what he wants to address first. In verse 23, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus says, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see the Son of Man glorified. Father, glorify your name. He says, I have glorified it, talking about his life, and I will glorify it again. Most people who study the scriptures say that in this moment, Jesus is unequivocally declaring that the cross is the picture of God's glory. The cross is the picture of the glory of God, which is amazing. Now, I want us to think about that word glory for a minute. The word glory actually has a lot of history to it. If you were a good Jewish person, your immediate thought would go back to a section of scripture in Exodus 33, where Moses, one of the best leaders in the nation of Israel, he asked to see God's glory. He said, God, let me see your glory. And God says, listen, I'd love to show you my glory, but it would kill you. And so God agrees to allow Moses as God has passed by for God to look for, for Moses to look at God as he's passed by. And then we see another section that someone that has Jewish history might think of in Psalm 19 verse 1. It says the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. This word glory could literally be translated weightiness. The idea here is if you took a pebble and you threw it into a lake, you'd get to see its glory by how much water it displaced. Or if you were to take a boulder and throw a boulder into a lake, you'd get to see its glory by how much water it displaced. It's a way of talking about majesty. It's a way of talking about beauty. And so Psalm 19 says, if you go out in the evening and look up in the sky and try to count the stars, it's a little bit like taking in God's majesty, his glory, his beauty. But when Jesus says that the Son of Man will be glorified, talking about the cross, it, it changes everything. It changes the entire view of what we think about when we think about God, but also about what we think about when we think about glory. It doesn't seem like there's anything glorified by the cross. But what Jesus is saying is, he's saying, if you want to see what I'm like in all of my glory, in all of my weightiness, in all of my splendor, and in all of my beauty, then you cannot look past the cross. You can't look past Calvary. That's where you see, ultimately and definitively, what I'm like. Every other picture of God's glory is secondary to what happens on the cross. 
And we go, well, that, that doesn't make any sense that God would show his beauty, his majesty, his power through the cross. It doesn't make sense that he would do it that way. And throughout history, people have struggled with this idea of why would God choose to show his glory through the cross? There's a very famous atheist named Richard Dawkins who questions that. And he has this quote, this line that he says. He says, I don't see the Olympian gods or Jesus coming down and dying on a cross as worthy of grandeur. If there is a God, it's going to be a whole lot bigger and a whole lot more incomprehensible. And to Richard Dawkins, I'd say, what's more incomprehensible than the cross? I think he nailed it unknowingly to him. This is the upside-down world that Jesus invites us into. The glory of God is best displayed, according to the Gospel of John, on the cross. That's where you see him most fully. And if you read through the New Testament, it's going to be really clear that the cross is the wisdom and the power and the glory of God. And so why does this week change the world? Why does this week present us with this new day that we can be a part of? It exposes the reality that God's glory is found in sacrificial love. And so glory, this word about weightiness, but there's this word glorify, and that's a little bit different. Glorify is the request. When Jesus says glorify your name, he's saying put your glory on display. Let everyone see your glory. Literally in the Greek, it means to recognize the real substance of something. Where you go, oh, that's, that's what this is like. That's what that means. We get this picture, this idea of it in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says this about Jesus Christ. It says, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. You see, Paul here is reminding us that the cross is not something God does. The cross reveals who God is. The cross reveals what God is ultimately like. The cross is showing us forgiveness extended to all, love for enemies put on display, hope for the hurting held out, relationship with God ultimately and finally restored. This is what your God is like. And then if we go to John 12 again, it says this in John 12, 23, it says, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. You can almost imagine Jesus as he's walking with his disciples and using what's around him with how witty and clever and creative Jesus is, that he picks up some wheat and he rubs it in his hands and he watches it fall to the ground and he uses this as this way of illustrating what's happening. He sh he's showing them and he's making this point, the rhythms of grace are sown into the soil of creation. Every time that you see a seed go into the ground and come out with more life that went into it, you're seeing something that God has wired into this world. And that's a pretty awesome thing to see. And he goes on, he says, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Jesus says this in Mark 8, 34 and 35. It says, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. 
For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. This idea of taking up your cross is essentially saying back to God, not my will, but yours be done. When Jesus turns to go toward Jerusalem, when he turns the world upside down, he's doing it because he reveals that death is actually the path to life. And so hear me on this. Jesus is not calling us to look at the cross and to admire the cross. He's asking us to look at the cross and to emulate it, to live like it to live in the same way. And so look at how he does this in John chapter 12, verse 21. Go back to that verse where the Greeks are coming and they have this question. They come and they say that they want to see Jesus. And Jesus is like, that's great. You're going to see me lifted up in all my glory. But my goal, Jesus says, is not just that you see me. That's important, but it doesn't end there. My goal is that you follow me. That's my goal. And so this idea of death to self and what that looks like, it looks like something different to every person in this room. For the people pleaser, death to self looks like becoming a truth teller in some instances. For the fearful, death to self means embracing a life of faith and maybe a little bit of risk. To the stingy, death to self means becoming more generous. To those sitting on the sidelines, death to self means jumping in and taking that risk. Death to self might mean saying no, or to some, death to self might mean saying I don't know. A surrender of pride. A surrender of I've got to have it my own way or I'm going to be upset about it. Death to self is laying aside everything else and saying, God, what do you want from me? Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus says something really beautiful happens when we do that. He says it actually allows us to really, truly, finally, actually live. And here's how Jesus continues in John chapter 12, verse 31. He says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Judgment, that word makes us feel Negative. We don't like the word judgment. We probably picture somebody on a street corner with a sign, or we picture something involving fire. I don't know what's in your mind, but we typically have this step-back response to the word judgment. But judgment is not a bad thing, because listen to what he says. Judgment has two parts to it. The first part, he's talking about judgment. He says, now the prince of this world will be driven out. That's great news. He's talking about Satan. He's talking about sin. He's talking about death. He's talking about evil. He's presenting sin, death, and evil personified in Satan with an eviction notice saying, you're done. This is great news. And the second thing Jesus says is just as fascinating in the context of judgment. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is judgment. And this is good news. This is awesome. The cross is driving out evil and drawing in people. Jesus' selfless act on the cross is driving out evil and it's drawing in people. How many people? Jesus says all of them. And 1 John 2.2 says that he's atoned for the sins of the world, especially for those who believe. The sins of the world. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, it says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He's drawing all people to him. His blood, his death, his life, his resurrection is sufficient for every single person. And we have this picture of judgment that's presented as restoration. And then here's how Jesus closes in verse 34. 
The crowd spoke up. We've heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. He's going, listen, you have this opportunity in front of you. You've got this picture of what God is like. And here's what the picture is. Sacrificial love. It is his glory. You've got this picture of the path that he's called you to walk. And the picture of this path he's called you to walk is death as a way of abundant life. Dying to yourself. And you have this picture of God restoring his good creation, driving out evil, drawing in people. And he says, believe it. Believe it. Believe that light. Walk in that light. And in so doing, you become children of that light. And this invitation that he offers to the people in John chapter 12 is the same invitation that he calls us to as well. We also have this opportunity in front of us. Death as a way of abundant life. We can die to ourself and find true, real life through Jesus Christ. And all of that has happened because of the cross. Dying to yourself and giving your life to Christ Fully, completely, it brings new life. It makes you a new creation and allows you to experience a new day of hope. But one thing we also know is that even when this is presented to people, sometimes people decline it. We see in the next verse, in verse 37, it says, Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. How devastating, right? How devastating that they witnessed this, they they were in the presence of Jesus, and yet some that were there still would not believe. But this happens today. Even though many know or have heard what Jesus has done for them through the cross, still many do not believe. And so my question for you this morning is, do you believe? Are you going to take hold of this opportunity that's presented before you to have abundant life? Are you willing to die to yourself? If you're here this morning and you need to do that for the very first time, dying to yourself, baptism is the ultimate demonstration of that. It is, in a sense, a death, burial, and resurrection. You die to yourself, you're buried in the waters of baptism, and you come out this new creation with new life. We want to give you that opportunity if that's something you desire. Or maybe you're here this morning and you need to die to yourself in a new way. Maybe you already are a Christian but yet you haven't been living the way that you should and you need prayers and encouragement of the church body here. We want to give you that opportunity. And so whatever way we can pray for you or encourage you, won't you come now as together we stand and sing.